Everybody, welcome today. Uh, we are joined by Catherine Liu, a professor at UC Irvine. Is that correct? Yep. And uh, she is the author of Virtue Hoarders, The Case Against the Professional Managerial Class. Uh, this book's had quite the impact on me and anybody who's really been following the stuff I've been doing for the last year, especially anybody who hears me say any, I, whenever I say PMC in a sentence, honestly, I get it from Virtue Hoarders more than uh, Barbara Ehrenreich or from uh, Lind or from Frank or any of these other people who I might reference from time to time. Virtue Hoarders has been kind of my go-to. Um, and so whenever people have kind of responded to the PMC thesis uh, or, or uh, line of critique and uh, it doesn't seem like they've actually engaged with virtue hoarders or Catherine Liu's work itself, I'm always like, I don't care what you're critiquing, you're not, you're not engaging with the most current topical thing on this right mm -hmm. now. And so um, I'm really, really honored to have, uh, how do you prefer to be called here, Catherine? Catherine, just call me Catherine. You yeah. don't want me to call you Dr. Liu? <laughs> No, no. Or your royal highness. Your royal. <laughs> yeah, we will do that then. Yeah, your majesty. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. You are called theory plebe, so. <laughs> yeah. That yeah, is your right. name. That's right. So please, take the knee. Take yeah. the knee. <laughs> yeah. Here I am. Um, so part of the reason this book really stands out for me is because, uh, especially since uh, 2020, I've been doing a lot of... Uh, a lot of, I guess, reconsideration of my assumptions about how social change works. And, you know, I think that that's, it was called for because of the failures of the, the Bernie campaign, specifically the, the second time around. And the, that article by uh, Nagel and Tracy, First is Tragedy, Then is Farce, um, mm -hmm. talks about how the the whole movement had kind of shifted from 2016 to 2020 towards more of this constantly capitulating to the Democratic Party and its rhetoric, uh, to its interest groups, um, and, and becoming the anti-Trump movement instead of a positive movement that has solutions and is against the Democratic Party. Um, that, that affected me, but it was really the PMC thesis that's come around and has the most explanatory power for me right now. Mm. And... But, I mean, before we get any further into this, I, th I guess what we really have to do is set up what is the PMC. Because I cannot assume an audience of people who have gone and watched all of these excellent interviews you've done on Jacobin. I think maybe four or five now. Mm -hmm. um, and so let's just kind of start from square one. What is the professional managerial class and why is it important to add to a, a traditional class analysis? So I like to start like historically and talk about like... Um, um, the long arc of um, working people and domination by the powers that be. So you could think of the, you know, in a very epic historical materialist sense, the first professional managerial class apparitions were in the clerisy who um, interpreted the Bible for the divine rule of kings. And this happens globally, right? You need a clerical cadre who read, who are literate, and you have a large number of people, peasants under feudalism, serfs, who are not literate. And you have a smaller group of aristocracy which um, use arms, which are the, no, the landed gentry nobility came from um, a kind of warlike class. And then you have this king who has to put down 
um, and rule over a very unruly set of nobility. And um, he also is, when it's a he, um, has to make peace with the church. And so you have a clerical class that comes in to manage um, belief and to manage the, you know, um, the sacred rights. The thing about the real innovations, if you think about it from a Marxist point of view in um, this kind of feudal role or pre-capitalist role, is in a figure like Louis XIV, who found, who got Cardinal Richelieu, like I think ultimate professional managerial class um, president, to be both his accountant and his cardinal. So he managed the money and the Bible and the, and the church stuff. So as capitalism evolves though, this class expands and it produces something called, you know, like literacy, what we think of as literacy today. And um, the other thing is the complexity of capital accumulation requires accountants, right. the accountant side of things to be more important. And within um, the analysis of someone like Siegfried Krakauer, who is looking at the evolution of class politics in early 20th century Germany, this class eventually, you know, they're proletarians. They don't, they, they're, um, relation, they don't ha own the means of production, right? But right. they um, have salaries rather than being paid hourly wages. And they work um, in jobs. And this is like everyone like gets at me on this. I think it's a really easy way to describe this. And I think that um, if we look at things carefully today, this can help us understand how this class tries to differentiate itself from other workers, is that it more and more does work that doesn't damage the body through like heavy, through um, immediate heavy lifting, right? So in that case, like during COVID, like the people like me who had email jobs did better because we were able to sit in front of the setup and, um, you know, we get carpal tunnel syndrome. But if you're working in a mill, if you're working at Amazon, if you're working in a factory, from China to Detroit, you're hurting your body. Right. Um, and so that's, you know, we in this United States call it blue collar, white collar work. But the other thing about this class is that it's sort of broken out. That's its managerial function is as, um, as uh, the mode of production becomes more complex, the extraction of labor from workers is more and more um, extreme and more and more disciplined. This class manages that um, they're foremen. You know, the, on the old factory floor, they were managing efficiency, managing um, exploitation for the capitalist owners, but they felt better than the average worker because mm. they probably did, you know, they, they had a bigger picture of the production processes. So today, increasingly, like if you think about how this class has evolved, it's professors, manager, managers, engineers, um, finance people. This class has become um, more and more powerful within like even the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Like in the beginning of the 20th century, the majority of Americans were factory or agricultural workers. Mm. That's obviously not the case today. The majority of Americans still do blue-collar jobs or service jobs, but um, the PMC, the white-collar part of this class, has expanded from 3% to 25% of the workforce, which is enormous, right? It's an enormous amount in, of growth. In, in what amount of time did that occur? But probably between like um, 1900 and 1985, so probably oh, wow. over 100 years. And there's... Um, 
And so um, the, Barbara and John Aaronite first identified the importance of this class because like, we can talk about like the mercantile capitalists versus the mercantile bourgeoisie versus you know the credentialed elites, but what has happened in the United States since '68 is that the values of this class dominate left progressive spaces. And even to use the word space is very pianist. Yeah, like, yeah. Just, um, I'm like... They've know, got a lot of visibility. Under, <laughs> under, under like, uh, quotation marks because right. they use, like, all the special precious language. And um, they're, they want to monopolize the language of social and political change. And they've done a really good job of it. So that um, when the right wing is like, oh my God, they're all cultural Marxists or leftists believe in this. I'm always like, what? Leftists don't believe in that. But then from their point of view, like the conflation of the liberal and the leftist is complete. And we know that um, the media, the um, culture industries, um, nonprofit foundations, government, politicians on the left liberal side are all, have all gone to college. They've all probably gone to elite colleges. They all probably have graduate degrees, and they all are and 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 they all work in this way that they think they are on the side of progress. And so right. it's evolution as a sort of um, voice of progress. You know, comes out of it's comes out of. The, the, American labor, Jane Adams in Chicago, they invented social work. They invented um, progressive education. And part of it was under the pressure of immigration, of um, migration from the South of African Americans, urban problems, and incredible labor unrest, right? Throughout the first half of the 20th century. So they helped manage like the New Deal's um, redistributive and more democratic socialist, democratic socialist um, kinds of policies. After the second, is this too long? No, no, no I th you're doing great. From my end, I always say this. My my struggle is like, will I be able to get her to talk? <laughs> as long okay, as you're no, talking, I'm happy. That, I don't have that problem. <laughs> so, um, so um, the Cold War also accelerated the power of this class because. Um, the military-industrial complex that Dwight Eisenhower called it used um, think tanks like RAND, um, used um, mili the intelligence services mostly trained at Yale to fight communism. Like, you needed an empowered professional managerial class to fight communism at home and abroad. Right. So um, you have this, you know, with nuclear war impending, you have these... Dr. Strangelove characters who are doing modeling of what a nuclear winter would look like, like and also all the engineers who are, um, you know, making, and in the defense system and the national security state, need a lot of credentialed elites to manage those budgets, to manage the expansion of the military after World War II. The other thing that... You know, living like the um, the GI Bill veterans returning home from World War II were able to go to college for free, right? And so you need to expand this class because more Americans got college degrees than ever before. Um, 
On the other hand, in 1947, there were 4 million workers on strike at any given time. So you have a lot of labor unrest. And, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, we should think about is what the workers were doing in 47 was saying, you know, we, we killed ourselves to make um, all those ships, all those, all those weapons. We sacrificed everything and um, we won the war. We deserve more of the rewards. And so people now say, okay, they're, they were like the labor aristocracy. They're just a bunch of racist assholes. They got, but they got people to go on strike and they, and they were able to make, you know, demands on capital that um, resulted in, you know, what we think of as a more generalized redistributive culture um, or economic policies um, up until 72. Um, did we see something similar after COVID? People are saying like, oh, workers, especially like frontline workers, where you work like logistics workers, Amazon workers, service workers, they're going to go on straight. Hold, kept the hold on, hold on one second. I'm sorry to, I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, I'm having a connectivity issue that just occurred, and so it jarbled your okay. speech. And there's this part of you're just saying um, that after 2020, it's uh, concerns about um, everyone going on strike, essential oh, workers. Yeah. Uh, but before we get back to that uh, train yeah. of thought, I'm just gonna disconnect and reconnect right here um from the from my side it'll drop me for a second i think okay, we should be well good. we can go back we can go back to um so like after 2020 2022 there was like saying like <laughs> they the they the, the government the think tank people the liberal media they were saying that you know workers are not working you know we have a job we have a surfeit of jobs not enough workers is this going to be creating the kind of labor unrest that happened in 47 after world war ii like we won the second world war the workers the industrial workers wanted more you know will this happen with blue collar service workers logistics workers because we've you know basically downsized our industrial workforce and moved it to china but we still have a lot of blue collar workers here who um, kept the country running, right, during the pandemic. And so there was a kind of voting with your feet and people not working. It, you know, did, is there that kind of worker unrest now since 2020? You and I both saw what happened with Bernie. You and I both saw the opportunities missed. And do we see that kind of like generalized worker unrest and a sense of entitlement and outrage organized through unions to create like the kinds of um a shaking of confidence of the capitalist and a kind of capitulation to workers interests on the part of the pmc i think not i think like people have doubled down on um really really obscure identity politics and culture wars within the liberal elites and culture industry i mean and there's a very very thin level of like any kind of ideological commitment to working class causes and um, or even to politics at all because the DNC and all, they're just all on the grift basically. Right. So what we, so um, I don't see the equivalent happening. There was a window between the pandemic and between um, shortages of workers, between um, the, um, the sense of like what a working class solid vision of solidarity might look like 
but I, I, I'm very pessimistic now at this moment. You've caught me at a really pessimistic moment about um, any kind of organized opposition or resistance to right. the liberal centrist, um, um, really oppressive capitulation to capitalism. Um, and is there an American left even to speak of that's not completely dominated by the values of the PMC? No, there isn't. Nope, no. there isn't. No, there's not. And, and if you get on social media and you criticize the DSA, you will you will have like the most horrible. I tried it, and I'm thinking, you know, left organizations need to criticize themselves, move on, and I just got blasted by um, I don't know random people, but like and and people like Doug Henwood who are part of this kind of. I don't know, old left elite, or I don't even know what. But um, they really want us to toe a line about certain kinds of language, certain um, taboo topics that we can't criticize the left for right now. So I'm pretty pessimistic. and I. But I don't think, at the same time, that um, the liberal ideology is very secure. And I, I do think that the um, sort of rebellion against it will come from the right. It is. It, it does yeah. seem to be. It, it is coming from the right. It se- yeah, it seems like the right today, even even the corniest guys like, uh, I, f- I forget that TPUSA guy, um, uh, Charlie, Charlie Kirk. Kirk. Yeah, even people like him will say pro-workerist kinds of things now. And, you know, obviously, t- you know, Tucker is a good example of someone who's been doing that for a while. And so yeah. what you, you what you see is, and this this is where I lose the most hope, is because because there are people on the right who are you know, smart and opportunistic and adapting to the situation, um, the the liberal left um, or the the people who speak with it in mind. They say they basically they don't they want to be so unlike the right that if the right is doing its pseudo populism. Then they won't do populism, or they or they will actually they'll 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 attack populism, or yeah. or put it down as it. Well, it's not a real solution. Yeah, well, it could be part of the solution. How about well? So there was a lot more openness to talking about economic populism when Trump was around because I do think the Democratic elites were terrified, like they were their faith and their agenda was shaken. So they were like looking for solutions, right? And so they would. There was more openness to questioning. But after they got everyone to toe the line and elect Biden, they were like, fuck you, motherfuckers, we're doing our thing. And that's how it is now. That's how it is now. And, um, um, you know, the one thing that I really despair about is that you need an organized, disciplined mass movement on the left. I, to speak to workers, because I do think that no one speaks for them. No one, and you know what? We're, the poor, the working poor, they are not wrong when they say, oh, you know, I'm not voting the, you know, the nobody cares about us because I, I canvassed for Bernie and, you know, I met a lot of angry people who are like, and also very passionate people, but, you know, one of some, some of them in the working class neighborhoods we went to would just be like, you know what, no one cares about us. And then I was thinking, you know what, they're not wrong. They're not wrong. They they understand this political situation. They don't have a lot of leisure time to get involved in politics or read. And there is a kind of um, emotional catharsis that Fox News offers like, mm-hmm. and that Tucker offers. You know what? 
like what the DNC, what the Democrats are seeing now is that you know working class people of color are also finding this like cathartic pseudo populism really appealing, because you've got Nancy Pelosi saying you know happy birthing people day and people are like that just has no nothing to do with what my um, live my reality is right. These people are so far from understanding what I'm going through. And what I was thinking about too was like, you know, how the 60s were like demanding more authenticity and immediacy, and they were like, oh, yeah, the establishment lies and all that. The working class has that same attitude. And you know, the more hypocritical you are, the more stupid terms you come up with to describe um, politics that has nothing to do with anyone's, you know, day to day necessity of survival, the more hypocritical you seem and the more opportunities you give to the right to say, to denounce you and say, you know, these people are out of touch, they don't know what's happening. And I, this is one thing that I'm really trying to do, even though, you know, I'm in the academy and everything else, although I'm very paranoid these days, um, is just speak in a way that has some correspondence to authenticity, to political truth. And not like come up with some far-fetched language that I and a, and like 300 other people know how to speak. Like I, I have read a lot. I do know a lot of stuff. But I'm trying to communicate it in a way that doesn't like create kind of obscurantism. And we really need that. You know, we don't have that platform yet. You know, I look at Rogan. We talked about this, correspondent about this. He, he really tries to have arguments and conversations with people, authentic yeah. arguments and conversations. You might not like it, or, you know, it might go too far with the bro thing. I mean, I have a son, so, like, I know what that's like, you know, here, it's legs day to day, it's arms day to day, and, you know, it's very macho and masculine, whatever. Right. But um, why isn't there um, a kind of left equivalent who can create that kind of platform? Right. We are shot down immediately if we don't... Um, adhere to some crazy line that the DNC and the private foundations want us to adhere to. And then I, I do think this is, Angela herself is doing this too, that there are some people who have been pushed so far by this kind of left liberal conformity that they just don't care anymore about the left-right um, divides. Compact magazine might be a place where some of this is happening. Yeah. It's a little, I don't know if it's like actually going to reach the people. But, you know, I worked on populism for years, and um, I thought it was really an important topic and should not be dismissed. It should not be dismissed as reactionary. And, like, you always have to look at what the populists are reacting to. Right. And within the academy, you know, that's not, that's not a popular, that's not necessarily a popular position, let's put it that way. I mean, uh, this is just a silly story, but... Um, you know, Etienne Balibar was like, a, is this big French Marxist, and he used to come to Irvine, and um, this was many years ago now, like 15 years ago, when I was okay. working on my book on populism, and he goes, oh, so Katrine, what are you working on? And I'm like, um, I'm working on populism, actually, I'm really, on cultural populism, economic populism, as a form of dissent with regards to liberalism. He goes, populism, um, that's not good, right? You are not supporting it. And I was just like... You're like a Marxist. So I guess that's the line that, you know, the Marxists in Paris have decided, like, populism is bad. They think of it as Le Pen. They, they thought of it as the Front National. But when you look at the actual history of populism in America, the People's Party, it was an agrarian revolt against the monopolies in the 1890s after that right. economic crisis. So I was just like, wow, you know, we just... Um, 
even the most eminent Marxists just dismiss this out of hand. And um, it also no wonder we're no wonder we're fucked. So it was. It was it's also uh, in uh, Adolf Reed and Kenneth W. Warren's book here, "Renewing Black Intellectual History." There's uh, one of the one of the essays uh, of Mr. Booker T. Washington and others by Judith Stein. Mm-hmm. It's, she talks about how the, far, the, the black and white farmers and miners alliances in the uh, 1870s are what developed into the populist party, which was a robust movement before it was yep. psyopsed and persecuted and crushed yep. by both parties. And that, yep. that you know, Jim Crow was a kind of, it's what we think of when we think about the betrayal of Reconstruction, but there's a lot of things that went into that betrayal. And they were, these were not just, oh, white people decided to be more racist after the Civil War. No, this was the the Democrats and Republicans putting through systemically racist policies to try to divide that populist movement. Yeah, right? you know, there was an agrarian um, alliance of white and black sharecroppers who um, saw what was happening in the um, West because that's where the populace started, you know, in, especially in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and um, these other areas. And there were there were like local um, reading groups. There were farmers alliances. There were there were working class people who were um, who saw their interests as necessary and and um, as having something to do with each other. And then there were and then. And then there were forces that came in, established Jim Crow. It was the powers that be in the South that established Jim Crow that reinforced the color line. And But the organic working class movements of the late 19th century were interracial. Like there was this interracial right. moment. I mean, I don't have all the facts in front of me right now, but you, but there was like a black and black and white um, farmers league that was in the South. And one of the things they, they demanded which I also thought was really interesting considering like, you know, I was reading a lot of Hofstetter and um, I was looking at, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, American anti-intellectualism that was growing in the latter part of the 90s into the 2000s mm-hmm. was that, you know, a lot of these farmers and workers who rebel revolted and who established a third party, what they wanted was um, education. Yeah. And they wanted... Um, more funding for um, higher education, agricultural education, technical education. Um, they felt that they hadn't gotten good educations. And some of the greatest leaders of the populist party were self-educated people who wanted more education for farmers, who wanted more education for um, the working class. So in response to this, the federal government does create like greater um, um, educational opportunities, the state universities became better funded, at least in the Midwest. I'm not sure about the South because, mm. you know, their their elites were always very, very, um, very, very feudal and aristocratic. But um, at least in the Midwest. But then, so how did you have this idea of popular education demanded, but for, you know, that was a demand of the working classes, um, become like the servants of um, credentialed elites? And that's the story of the 20th century. And that's the story of the PMC. That's the story of how you create these barriers around higher education and you make it seem like it's a luxury good and you say, like, like, this is how you enter our group and this is how you stay out of it. You know, 60... Americans have never been more educated. 
than, you know, in any time in its history. Like 64% of Americans have some kind of higher education degree. But they also, but, you know, there are also statistics out there that say the majority of Americans can't read past the eighth grade right. level. So um, when you look at some of the writings of these, you know, of the Farmers Alliance people, it was incredibly um, fluent and eloquent, but they were educated they educated themselves. Abraham Lincoln, you know, from an earlier generation is from that um, era too. And what you, we have is general mass education serving the purposes of capital. We have an educational industry that starts with higher education, making it um, a prestige hoarding activity and then a, um, uh, a gatekeeping activity. And it becomes a justification for radical economic inequality like oh you didn't get your college degree that's why you're you know working 50 for 15 dollars an hour and right. i make you know two hundred and fifty thousand dollars an hour there's right. so the the whole perversion of the educational mission is terrible but i also have to say like okay that perversion is really horrible but the exclusion of the marxist point of view because of the world war because of our anti-marxism is really sad because i keep thinking about how marx gives us a truly epic view of human history and truly looks and truly speaks to the um, evolution of work and uh, for the majority of human beings on the planet. Work, exploitation, inequality, political unrest, contradiction, like all of those things, like this politically epic point of view about the evolution of capitalism out of feudalism. That's so important. It touches every aspect of our lives from mm -hmm. sex to eating to um, dying. And and yet that's the one, you know, um, perspective that's excluded from um, education at, at any level. Now, I know that, you know, high school teachers and everyone try their best, they do their best, but it's so like baked into the system that we can't have that point of view. Like people love to game, people love Game of Thrones, people love like that epic thing, that epic perspective. You know what that epic perspective is? It's not in positivism, it's not in pluralism, it's not in empiricism. Like, I'm gonna go collect a lot of facts and then tell you about this like very obscure plant that somebody yeah. had a relationship <laughs> with in 1699. No, you know, that does make sense in a larger picture if you want to think about like the spice trade or something. But a history of violence, a history of exploitation, that epic point of view, that is a Marxist point of view. And it's, and been... it's so exciting to um, actually learn about history from that point of view. And no one's I mean, doing and it then right now. What, what? And, and, no one, and no one's doing it. And, and I would say Very that's also, it. it's by design, right? Because It is by design. And because we always think like, oh, those Marxists, they're ideologues. And we're liberals and skeptical. And we have like creativity and flexibility. I haven't met a really skeptical and creative liberal in a very long time. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No. Sorry, liberals. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, uh, we've all probably, I mean, we... We all, a lot of us, meaning people in this audience, have probably had interactions with people online or in person who are, you know, this kind of scripted, dogmatic feeling kind of, quote unquote, Marxist or whatever. But the the worldview that you're talking about is one that's profoundly impacted me in, in, in terms of, you know, having read A Strange Labor um, 
maybe like my second semester into college, not because a professor, you know, uh, had that on the syllabus, obviously, because it wasn't, um, but because actually a professor who was teaching a political philosophy class basically had us read every person on that syllabus very seriously, but then had us do cliff notes for Marx. And it made me realize there was a bias on the syllabus. And so I went searching out somebody who could tell me more about mm. Marx. I was like, something, something's wrong here. And I honestly had no idea what I was getting into. You know, before college, wow. I didn't know about philosophy. I didn't know who Marx was. And so that estranged labor piece, though, was the first real big moment for me that made me realize my whole life I've been blaming other people in my life or myself for everything that's ever gone wrong. And I never really thought about, oh, we're in a, sh we're in a shitty situation. None of us have time or energy to be able to focus on ourselves or one another, to be able to develop ourselves in any sort of serious way. And I know I heard you mention this in one of those Jacobin interviews. You talked about Marx at his most humanist moment when yeah. he's thinking about the capacities that are going dormant, the missed opportunities, the families that are not able to connect. And, you know, because people are trading away their entire living lives, that's that's the most important thing to me from all of it right yes when we talk about exploitation look i don't honestly personally okay if if some people need to be paid a lot more than me and i need to be i i, I don't give a shit i i just don't want to have to worry about where i'm going to live and i want to be able to have extra time and energy to be able to you know this idea that the pmc just wants to cultivate itself and all of this we, we, we can talk crap about it but it's like well, yeah, but I also want to be able to do that. Absolutely. I, want, I think Absolutely. everyone should be able to do that. Yes. Right? And see, that's, I think, one of the most important things about um, Marx's analysis of surplus value and leisure time is that there actually is, as production becomes more efficient, there should be more leisure time right. for everyone, especially for the working class. And not just leisure time for that self-cultivation for the owners of the means of production, but every worker should be able to reproduce his or her own life and have enough time to cultivate him or herself. The, a lot of like, you know, um, leftists of your generation think that it's all about cutting, Marx, leftists is about cutting down the tall poppies because they've imbibed a kind of Puritanism that thinks that to be a good leftist means you have to preach austerity for all. A lot of environmentalism is like that too. There right. is crypto-Christianity. One of the things that um, happens in the evolution of capitalism is that by the 19th century, there is a bourgeoisie that has, um, there's, enough, there's a critical mass of the bourgeoisie in um, industrialized countries that has enough leisure time to um, to value cultivation, self-cultivation. In German, it's called Bildung, right? Yes. Marx sees this, right? Marx sees this happening. He sees this happening in Germany. He sees this happening among the stupid aristocracy of England and nobility and the bourgeoisie. And he's like, you know, everyone should have the ability to cultivate themselves and not be worked to death. Everyone should have this leisure time. This leisure time is a part of the commons that the aristocracy um, used primitive accumulation to destroy in the 15th century so that the peasants couldn't um, um, cultivate their lands or uh, pasture their sheep any longer. And now, as a kind of human capacity, the bourgeoisie, and I'm, I'm making this leap, but is taking this 
sort of human capacity for aesthetic enjoyment, critical thinking, self-cultivation, and monopolizing it for itself on the backs of the majority of um, workers who in England had, at that point, a 29-year um, you know, um, life me. expectancy, yeah. who were you know, worked to death by that age, who were working from the age of six. And so he's looking at these ladies who are wearing the lace dresses that the 16-year-old girl, Irish girl worked herself to death to produce. And he's not saying no more lace, which is what a lot of these fucking Puritans in America want to do. He's saying, you know, we should all have the luxuries. There is nothing too good for the masses. We should all have these luxuries. Um, I just saw something really sad on TikTok. This is like oh, terrible. No. Oh, no. Just on social media <laughs> too much. But there was one, uh, a young woman who said she just got a job for $20. For 20, she was making $20 an hour. And a lot of the comments were like, well, how are you going to redistribute that wealth? That's not wealth. That's no, I'm her sorry. salary. Yeah, I'm sorry. What? Yeah, 20, so 20 the, bucks an hour? Primitive, <laughs> there's a very primitive, self-imposed austerity that also happens with the um, cancel culture stuff in right. um, in left liberal circles, and I'm I'm just like you. We are not free from the yoke of crypto religiosity. Each one of us is a Puritan, ready to out the next witch. This is the opposite of solidarity. Yeah, yeah. This this uh, you know I think you use actually. I, I, this would be a perfect time for me to read one of my favorite quotes from your book. Uh, because it actually ties right in. It goes. It's a little bit long, but you know, uh, my, we talked about this. The the working class has longer attention spans and listens to three hour conversations all the time nowadays. While the PMC complains, oh, it's long. Well, this this is this is it's not that long, but it goes at the beginning of the 18th century when the labor of others allowed for European bourgeois elites to use their leisure time to cultivate sensibility and sensitivity in an allegedly disinterested manner, a select group of men and women of leisure came to imagine new forms of sociability and intersubjectivity. Today's capitalists and PMC elites are also into self-cultivation, but their anxiety about their privilege makes them work very hard to humiliate others and project themselves tirelessly as a cultural and political vanguard, doing things to themselves of which ordinary people are incapable. 100%. PMC elites are always experimenting with themselves, from returning to the land under the Aegis? Iagis? Aegis. Aegis. Aegis, yeah. Aegis of new com communalism to keto diets, only drinking sewage laden raw water and intermittent fasting. Their self-indulgence is always a kind of sanctimonious austerity. In terms of etiquette and new forms of mutual address, PMC elites have pioneered a language of liberal tolerance that the working classes have not mastered. PMC elites, consciously or unconsciously, want to humiliate their adversaries by attributing to them a desperate lack of intelligence, empathy, and virtue. End quote. Yeah. And yeah. I, go, thought, go I thought, you know, first of all, the, the image of you on TikTok already is really funny. Like you're, you're sitting here scrolling TikTok. I, I, you got to stay away from this yeah. stuff. It'll drive you crazy. No, no, I know, no, no, no. <laughs> this was just someone telling me like this person that just, this poor young 20 something just posted this and there were all these comments about, you know, when are you, when are you going to give us some of that money? And I was just like, what? 
wow, like this this person, this young woman just got a job which is making more money than she ever has, and you, like you're ready to take it from her. Yeah, like, I I don't believe in private property in the long run, but we're not there yet. We're yeah. not at come. We're not in communalism. So who are you people? Yeah. Yeah, and, and I, one of the things I was thinking here is also the tiny house movement and the van life <laughs> movement. Yes. Right? And you, there's well, two. Nomadland, the, the book and the movie, too. Like aestheticizing um, the destruction of a, a person's home, a possibility of even having a stable existence. Yeah. And one of the things about like um, the baseline existence that people need to be able to have time to think, time to read the calm to um, cultivate themselves as we talked about this, this, you know, needs, this is based on like a basic right to housing, to stable housing, but more and more as capital, as late capital has been chasing a falling rate of profit, all of our homes and um, ways of living have become objects of speculation. So right now it's almost impossible for young people to afford either renting or buying a place to live and so you're just living in fear constantly so on the one hand you have this like living in fear and then you have like over accumulation of wealth in the hands of a few who are using that wealth to speculate on the real estate market you know hedge funds venture capital are buying up um um, what single family homes especially in african-american neighborhoods raising the prices of rent then because you know what there's still more poor people more working class people there's money to be made from um exploiting working class people and poor people on the level of um of um their uh, their homes you know they're just this is like um this is called like economies of scale and they really understand it because poor people are a way of making money for these um venture capitalists. And um, this is the other thing that makes me really despair about um, left liberalism is that they have solutions that are non-scalable. They're terrified of scalable um, ideas like, you know, we'll just all recycle. It's like, that's not going to get us out of this fucking mess. It's an infrastructural problem. We need to have like a level of central planning and, you know, vision of a different world. Right. And this is why the um, U.S., you know, there are a lot of problems with China, but they, they say this is authoritarianism from China. But China is able to build high-speed rail. They're able to come up. They are going to produce better batteries, better solar power, better nuclear power because they understand scale. Right. The Chinese Communist Party has a lot of problems, but they understand scale, scalable solutions, and they understand... Um, that they've lifted 800 million people out of poverty within the past 40 years. And I always say, like, so what have you done lately, leftists? Right. Have you lifted 800 million people out of poverty? I know. There are a lot of problems. I'm not you know, going to be a tanky like that. But um, you got to understand China to understand, like, what they're trying to do. And it's a very imperfect system because they've incorporated capitalism into the system, created right. massive inequalities, and now Xi Jinping wants to go back to Marxism again. Um, he His ambition is to have socialism by 2050. But he felt that um, industrialization um, in China, the Communist Party felt like they had to catch up with the West. Right. And catching up with the West, you know, necessitated certain kind of accommodation of capitalist modes of production. Like state capitalism, they call it, right? 
Yeah. But yeah. I mean, and that's but we don't use we don't need to talk about China right now. It's no. Thing. Well, and and this is I mean, there's a lot of directions we can go in here, but the one that I really want to get back on. So we've talked about what the PMC is, like historically what it comes out of. Um, but I want to, why, why, what do you think is the purpose of this lens, this, this mode of analysis, this, this kind of critique? Um, I know you call it self-criticism, obviously, because you say this is my class I'm talking about and you're talking, you, you know, and you, you've got PMC aspirant or upwardly mobile people coming through your classroom. You want them to be aware of what it is they're integrating into and what they're internalizing along the way. Um, so, but, but for, for anybody who wants to be some kind of a, a change maker, who wants to make positive change, what, what, what are some of the benefits of not just yeah, of sitting with this and really thinking through um, the PMC critique. Well, I'm still hoping that it is the most powerful form of critical negation, right? Like, a, you know, Marx would say, like, criticize everything. And you, right. we have to negate um, the reality in order to get to that next level. We have to negate to sublate. And right. um, I also find it, like, you know what? Marxism for me is about the political, historical aspiration for emancipation for the greatest number of people, right? And that emancipation is dependent upon overturning the capitalist mode of production. While we are not there yet, we have, we can take, we can do certain things, which is ideological critique. And I know this sounds like, oh my God, you know, all we can do is sit around and criticize, we're just talking. But I do feel like there is an inchoate rage and fury that the popular classes experience and that we have to, my role right now is to speak to that, to affirm that, to put that in a context and to help people think about what is possible and that this is not the given is not what we have to accept and one of the things about that kind of emancipation though is not about like a you know individual freeing of your mind that's like libertarianism and that's what we you know that's the opposite that's another aspect of american culture that's really hard to get away from like so you've got our crypto puritanism right there are witches everywhere moral panics whatever um purification rituals like really terrifying um and then we have this libertarian strain which is you know i'm just going to do it myself like i'm going to go out there and have farm and you know fuck y'all and i'm going to be um you know, a, um, a militia man or, an, or a commun- communal hippie, like I'm gonna make my own bread, I'm gonna do my own thing. We're, we live in a complex industrial society. That's, you know, you can make your cabin, it can last for a while, but like that train, the libertarian frontier, frontiersman, the yeoman, that train has departed the station. Um, we are connected in deep and profound ways. We have to be connected in deep and profound ways. And that, and thinking for me and sort of scholarship at this point is about understanding what those connections are. And it's both very, it's, it should be very humbling, 
but it also can be very joyful because you put yourself in the context of a long historical struggle for freedom that um, is part of human history and is a really important part of human history. Like, if you're working on the assembly line, if you're working at a shit job, you know what? 99% of um, working class people have worked at shit jobs. Maybe like the 1% of people like work at a job they really love and then they become Mark Zuckerberg. Fuck them. We all work at jobs that are deeply alienating, exploitative, but that is something that's really powerful because these forms of work have evolved through human history where workers like workers from 50,000 years ago when Homo sapiens emerges and um, and to understand how human beings are means to be connected to other people in our class to a historical trajectory that aims for the emancipation of the many. So that is what I think is still and always going to be possible. I'm not, I'm, you know, of course, I'm not being that specific right now because it's not being taught at the universities now. And, you know, I didn't used to be so afraid of being canceled, but I like things are really scary right now. So I'm going to write this book that's, you know, on trauma, that's very um, um, disciplined. But I have this feeling like if they wanted to get me the they, they, they would, you know, I've taught for almost 30 years. They'll, they'll find something to get me on the they. Oh, and, it's, um, <laughs> it's a matter of time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and what, but what I want to insist upon is solidarity and um, conviction of um, our primary identity as one being shaped by our relationship to the mode of production. Yeah. It doesn't sound that scary, that scandalous, but... It has long, it has implications that go beyond like focusing on our gender, our sexuality, or our race, our nationality, our ethnicity. Like the fundamental human um, relation to work and the mode of production also subtends our universal desire for emancipation and dignity. Yeah, and you're either, like you've said, hurting your body for a paycheck or you're somehow finding a way to make a living, maybe a good one off the tops of the people who are hurting. And that is a, I just feel like this, this sometimes, sometimes a simplistic hierarchical analysis is okay. Then you zoom back out and we can talk about capitalism some more, but at the most simplistic level, you've got people breaking their bodies and then, yeah, you got people who are alienated in their office spaces. Breaking but their minds, yeah. They're breaking their minds, but they're not breaking their bodies. And then they guess what? They get to go eat some really good food for lunch, right? So there's these right. little, there are right. these little ways the that perks. it pays. Yeah, there's yeah, some yeah. perks, yeah. yeah, exactly. So one of the things that um, Krakauer in the Salaried Masses, which is an incredible study, anthropology of German workers in the interwar period, which is a sort of explanatory mechanism for him to understand, like, the German petit bourgeois susceptibility to fascism was he talked to this like white collar worker who um, was, you know, it's a lot like the downsizing movie that George Clooney was in. I can't remember, but um, this guy, you know, wrote pink slips and he, and Krakow asked him like, so what would you, 
what would you do if you were told to fire yourself? And he said, well, of course, that would be the best thing for the firm, so I would do it. <laughs> and that, that intermediary, that intermediate relationship between, like, the workers that you're managing and firing, the bosses who are the capitalists, and your function um, makes of the PMC, like, uniquely incapable of identifying with workers, the masses, they identify with the bosses. And this is what you see in general in our class that they identify with the capitalist donors who give, you know, fifty million dollars to private foundations, or your boss at um, Goldman Sachs who makes fifty million dollars and you make one million dollars and you want to be him. You, you don't identify with the people you're downsizing. You identify with the sort of macro level um, economic um, engineering. But you know what's so um, scary is that among professors at least, and among like elites within the PMC, um, there's an in decreasing ability to even tell the difference between what your boss wants and what you want. And I think that still in the working classes, like in the lower echelons of workers, you have a distinct um, sense of what someone's trying to extract from you, what you try to do to maintain your dignity or your the integrity of your body or the flow of your work. and Within the upper echelons of, you know, wage laborers, you have almost a complete convergence, and this is through education, I think, of your interests and the boss's interests, even if there is materially a huge difference between what the boss wants and what you should want. So... That's, that's, that's where, when we were uh, talking before we started recording, and I uh, mentioned that book, Disciplined Minds, uh, what it ends up right. arguing is that uh, anybody who's like postgraduate, the filters they've had to go through, it, what those do, the, 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 the LSAT, the GRE, the, all these different things, it filters out anybody who is able to look at a bigger picture, who's, who's thinking about the, okay, so what, you know, whose interests does this serve? Right. And, and, it, and it, what it does is it, it selects for a disciplined mind, the kind of person who's able to focus on a niche area for 15 to 50 years. And, right. uh, in, and in doing that, to pursue um, funding for research, you got to think, I really love the way he sets this up. The, the way that, because for me, this, you know, as I'm a bit of an outsider, I've never actually pursued funding to do research within academia. But, you know, there are, there's... Oh, lucky for you. The, <laughs> yeah, there's money available, but it's always money towards specific ends. And so you look at all of that and then you've got to find a way to take your personal story and all of your interests up until now and the things that you've done, your CV, whatever, and then make that logically lead into this, this, this research interest that they have. You're, 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 it is that thing you're talking about, that harmonization of interests and, yeah. and w what kind of person is selected there? You know, a, a person who says, well, I'm researching this thing because I want to research this thing. Oh, do you? Well, this thing that you want to research just happens to be what's being funded by the military industrial complex. We right. might add, right? Right. No, this is, this is happening within, um, you know, the National Institute of Mental Health and the way that people are treating, you know, psychiatric disorders because the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistic Manual, is geared right now towards an, a diagnostic structure that allows for drug companies to say, oh, if you have 20 symptoms of bipolar, we can help you address with this drug 15 of them. So insurance companies will cover it. It's And so a lot of research 
is just tailored and they have, you know, gazillion dollars of funding to create molecules that treat a list of symptoms that have been, you know, that, that it's very iffy, the Diagnostic Statistic Manual in terms of its science, but yeah. that are um, tailored towards addressing this so that your molecule can be patented and then psycho, and then the pharmacological industry can take it on and you can make a lot of money. This is, you know, right now, like the cutting edge of a lot of this is Alzheimer's research. It's, you know, we have an aging boomer population. We also have like more mental disorders, mental illness problems than almost any other industrialized country. So if we come up with the right um, diagnoses and we come up with the right molecules, um, it's, it's the for-profit um, big pharma that drives a lot of um, neuroscience research right now. Mm -hmm. that, you look at so look at that so if we look at this then you can feel like really really overwhelmed and despairing the the thing that i've been really feeling overwhelmed and despairing about is actually um big ag the food industry i mean america is just being killed by its food right yeah. there's just there's no two ways about this any longer like you go to any other country in the world and you just don't see the levels of obesity that you see here and um it's all part of our industrial agricultural regimes and also part of the temporality of our um, work days. Like you don't have time to work, you don't have to, and it's like actually more expensive to buy fresh ingredients and cook them yourselves, especially if you're working a long, punishing, physically punishing yeah. job, you're just gonna go to Chick-fil-A or you know, McDonald's or whatever. And you know, I have nothing against like large, you know, um, like fast food chains, I keep thinking, I've said this before jokingly, but I feel like fast food chains can be easily converted to providing good food for the masses. Like when oh, yeah. you socialize fast food, then you'll have like communal kitchens because there are communal kitchens already. You'll have logistics lines, but you won't be designing foods that are high in fats, sugars, and um, salts to keep people coming back for more and more and more. You'll be able to feed people cheaply and in a healthy way, but you have to take out the monopolization of and the profit motive. Um, but when, so the thing is that the infrastructure is there. We just need to collectivize all of these. Um, the, the, all of these this is essentially the stores. thesis of the 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 thesis of my my work at Amazon book, uh, or it might be called everyone mm. should work at Amazon because the, the mm. point is we should collectivize Amazon and it's, it's a wonderful setup. I mean, it's great. We've robotized auto automated, like 98% of everything there. I I've, I've worked other jobs, stocking shelves at grocery stores. And I did some at uh, Walmart one time for a Christmas season, you know, I've worked, you know, as a temp job and the, what, what, they've streamlined the distribution stuff to such a degree at Amazon that like maybe like uh, nine out of 10 steps that I was doing stocking shelves at a grocery store have been eliminated. You know, mm -hmm. I don't I don't have to bring the, the stuff over with the pallet jack and I don't have to unstack it myself and then bring those stacks of boxes down to the respective places on the aisle and then cut open the plastic and then op and then put it on. And I don't, ha I don't have to face it on the shelf. No, 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 no. It just comes to me on totes. I take it. I put it in the cubby holes on the pods and then the, I just do that for 12 hours. <laughs> now, I would prefer yeah. to do it for six hours instead of 12 right. and I would prefer, you know, I, I like the, the way I'm currently, right now it's three days a week 
and it's uh, 12 hours. It's technically 12 and a half. I, I have this argument with people all the time because I'll say it's a 12 and a half hour shift and then they're always correcting me. It's 12 hours. And I'm like, no, it's 12 and a half. We have to be here for 12 and a half hours. They're like, yeah, but you, you clock off for a half hour. That's your time. These are fellow employees telling me that. I'm like, no. I can't be at my house doing my own things. This is a 12 and a half hour shift. Eventually they get it. You know, it's the difference between labor and labor power, right? Because your capacity okay. is on call. You're there. You're not able to do your own things. But I mean, obviously you know that. But the uh, what I'm saying though is that if I'm able to almost make a living um, working a 36 hour work week, you know, it's uh, these, these 12 and a half hour shifts three in a row, once per week. If we eliminated a lot of bullshit jobs and redundant warehouses, well, people could work a third of the amount of time that they're currently working, yeah. right? If we redistributed the actual jobs that people need to be doing, this is where it becomes a, the, the whole PMC critique becomes a, crucial to any kind of solution. I've not written a book about the solutions or anything like that, but the just if you're thinking towards solutions, you're not really thinking if it doesn't involve a radical redistribution of the kinds of work that people would be doing in their lives, but more importantly, not making that kind of work their identity or their entire function or role in society, right? right? Oh, I, I, I help do production or distribution, but that's just part of my life. The rest of my life, I'm doing a million other things that I care about right. a lot more. Right. Fishing in the morning, <laughs> fishing in the little, little cattle tending in the, in the afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> and then this is what we're doing right now. It's the critique over, over pints. Right. Yeah. Right. No. Um, um, I do feel like, um, the foods, the foodways are killing us. And, um, there, there were all these critiques that came out like food Inc., Michael Pollan's, um, the omnivores dilemma, all of those things about like thoughts, well, slow food, they've all become like, um, highly specialized, like fancy things that are, you know, luxury items. Like we can do slow food. We can hunt our own food. We can, you know, go truffle hunting in Northern California. We can have like, um, gourmet meals made by whatever her name is for $120 a person. All of that is fine and good. It's just not scalable. And, um, I have to say like what, because I grew up in the seventies when there when you thought there was a more communal future possible, I would I would always think like the most ideal kind of life would be like the earthships where you'd have single families able to occupy certain spaces and then like communal kitchens. Because I, I personally do not like to cook, right? Yeah. But, you know, I will. And also it's expensive to go out. So, but if you had like a communal kitchen where, you know, um, people could provide healthy foods for like a, just a pod of families, then you would free, you know, mothers from the drudgery of cooking every day. And this was part of the communist agenda, the Soviet and the Chinese communist agenda, was that women should enter the workforce, women should be active politically, professionally, um, industrially, and, you know, freed from the slavery, from domestic slavery, where they were just in charge of their homes and shopping and everything else. And, um, you know, all of these, like, really specialized, like, fancy kitchens that these rich people have that they never use are really hilarious to me because it's a lot about the theater of, like, fine dining, but um, they can afford to have good food. Amer you know, average people should afford, should be able to afford to go out and have good food and not kill themselves, you know, um, because 
we sh we should collectivize um, food preparation and um, also take away the profit incentive from high fructose corn syrup and all right. this other stuff. And it just really worries me because the industrial production of food is producing like incredible health um, issues for Americans, and it's it's a disaster. Like we have a couple of like disasters coming down the line, and everyone is talking about the environmental disaster. Well, there's the um, nutritional and health. There's the right. public health disaster. Right, mono monocropping uh, is you know the the scale that you're you're growing that corn at or whatever it is is in inverse proportion to the nutrient density, right? And that nutrient and, and it density, have to be this way. Yeah. and that nutrient density is 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 uh, is aided by uh, biodiversity, which is the opposite of monocropping, right? And so, yeah. uh, actually, Michael Pollan um, in the Omnivore's Dilemma features uh, Joel Salatin, uh, that farmer, I think in Virginia, who's got yep. the polyface farms, and my my parents practice polyface farming, and the in Idaho. Uh, yeah, in North Idaho, which is practically a different state from where I live because it's like seven hours away. But um, wow. the the uh, I, I actually brought Joel Salatin to speak at Boise State when I was a student there, and uh, wow. yeah, wow. yeah, four hundred and fifty people showed up. It was really cool, and these the people who showed up. I think a lot of them, most of them, probably are the kind of Michael Pollan like audience, you know, his kind of, they, they shop at the co-op or Whole Foods, you know what I mean? Like they wear the nice Patagonia jackets and stuff like this. And, um, they, but th they're interested, right? But this is a part of that sort of, you know, solutions to big pr systemic problems as consumerism. But what I had him come yes. to talk about, what I had Paul, uh, uh, Salatin talk about was, can this kind of farming feed the world? Yeah. Right. Because that, that's the, the question. The yep. main question, I think, to me, yep. because obviously, like we think, well, we need this 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 monster egg approach. Um, and we don't. The fa I, 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 th I think that his arguments are convincing. It, on the one side, just uh, the government getting out of the way would probably be helpful enough because enough people want to farm. I, th I think it's a part of the... Right, right, right. There will right. always be people oh, who so want like to. the subsidies. Right, because the, the government subs subsidies to big ag out of the way. Yeah. yeah, if you just got the big subsidies out of the way, that that alone might make the difference. But also if you subsidize the sm the mid, the right. smaller no, to mid-scale farms. Right, you give it farms. to the smaller farms. Yeah, right. yeah, absolutely. Right. right, and so, and you know, it's a, for anyone not familiar, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an approach to... Uh, farming that brings in a lot more biodiversity. You're using the flora and fauna in a way that is cyclical. You're moving stuff around. You're building soil, and you're the. But the in, a, in another sense, it's like going back to this family farm model that was destroyed by um, consolidation, by Big Ag, by Monsanto, by Archer Midlands, Daniel Daniel Midlands, whatever, um, which is the idea of the American family farm as a place that produced many different kinds of goods that had animals that produced flowers that made honey that made mm -hmm. um that it made grains fruit and then so you had you know you didn't call it biodiversity then you just called it like you know you just, just farming you raised a lot of crops and you had animals it's called farming and um it was always very precarious right and it was always based on you know what um 
what um, you know a, a shaky economics but it needs like an infrastructure it needs government support it needs state support it's not impossible America has enough land it has enough people to, who are willing to farm but if you are a you know farmer in Iowa growing corn you know you've got Archer Daniel Midland um, selling you the seeds telling you selling you the fertilizer there's one bad um, you know there's one bad harvest and you're more deeply in debt and then you've got like the other um giant hog farm next to you ready to buy your land right you basically you're you're just mortgaging every harvest every year right and so what you and i are talking about are actual transformations in the modes of production right? right and it's not very radical even we're not like going you know let's collectivize and make communes or kolkhozes we're actually proposing like a return to small to family farms um large family farms to scale i believe that we can feed people in this manner too that doesn't make like the family farm pig or the organic thing like three thousand times more expensive than the supermarket but makes it scalable available mass produce it um because there are people who want to farm this way because we have enough land in america and because people need to eat more healthily right there's just so there's need there's demand but we have to break the back of the capitalization the for-profit farming that's killing people and killing the land too so salatin has like this incredible strength of character right and and he had a big enough farm that his family didn't break up. Um, right. So there were all these conditions for his family to be able to, you know, survive this um, consolidation and the monopolization of things. I mean, you know, when I was working in the University of Minnesota, the, I had a friend whose family was from Iowa, and they were, you know, very similar um, sort of, you know, family farm kind of, e- they had a family farm kind of ethos. It's an incredibly hard life. And when everything around you is becoming hog farms and your, you know, your farmhouse is just smelling like, you know, shit, you, your kids don't want to stay. No. And it's, and so it's very hard for a family farm to survive when industrial farming is all around you, right? So right. you have to reconfigure the whole situation so you support that family farmer. I just feel like these are debates that we're having about modes of production, Right. When you're talking about Amazon, we're talking about modes of distribution, right? Because right. we're not really talking about the Chinese. You know, we're not talking about bringing manufacturing jobs back to the U.S., which I think we should. But we're just talking about what needs that, what is happening within Amazon that is, you know, part of American the uh, American worker. And so um, these are conversations that people on the left don't like to have because they like to ha- talk about modes, modes of consumption rather than modes and, and cultural wars. And what right. we need to do is like do a you know, really focus on changing the the ways in which we produce our foods and not making more rarefied forms of like high cuisine, high di- you know fine dining, um, um, available to fewer people. I'm not. I know that's not that wasn't Pollen's intention. I mean, I think he is man of the left, but the way that his work has been received. The way that you know he, the New York Times embraced him, it became part of like an Uber PMC idea about um, you know you know what it is it's called it, like farm to table. I, farm exactly, to exactly. Right? And they have that one in the, I think it's actually in that same documentary. 
they 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 do show one of these really bougie places in New York City or somewhere like that where it's straight from the farm to the table and all of this and the I don't remember I don't remember that. I, I, there are more and more farm to fork what do you call it? farm to fork restaurants that you know the majority of people can't afford to eat at. So. And I a, a really good example I've had a a lot of friends who are uh, either ve they they are they are vegan or they were vegan or whatever. And these friends, I've heard multiple of them over the years say it's easy and it's a lot easier than people realize because actually veggies are so cheap and people act like they're so expensive still, but they're really not that expensive. Okay, let's just say that if that's true, and there, it's not always true, but you know, in some cases it's actually true. You can actually get a bunch of veggies pretty cheap, you know, and cheaper than say some overpriced cereal or whatever. Um, okay, you know, fair enough. Uh, Cooking it takes time though. Like my whole week is currently like, it, it looks like the only time I'm able to actually do any food prepping for my entire week is probably this evening. And I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a ton of enchiladas and I'm going to freeze a bunch of them. I'm going to have, bring them to Amazon, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, would I rather be doing something else during that time? Well, I mean, maybe, but if I just had a lot more time in my week, um, actually I would, I think I would still be cooking. The, the the people who are like, oh, you know, it's all so easy. I went to this one guy's house. His it's parents his parents lived up on the the rich end of Boise, you know, up on the hill. They could over it's like a mansion practically. And, you know, I was hanging out with him, uh, and he and he's talking about how easy it is in this really nice house and he's preparing this uh this uh I forget what they even call it. It's like a vegan like uh chicken uh, sort of substitute tempeh it's like this temp mm, this tempeh mm, thing mm. it took him two hours to prepare us our sandwiches and he's talking about how easy it is and i'm like i mean it looks easy but you're not thinking you have two yeah. hours to make a sandwich man i don't ever thing <laughs> the other thing is and this was my um this was my colleague Yong Chen's um, thesis he wrote a history of chinese food in america and he has a really interesting thesis is that um when the when the Chinese workers first came for the um, um, gold rush and it didn't pan out, ha ha ha, uh -huh. for most people. Um, sorry, I'm here all week. <laughs> um, um, they they went into you know restaurants and laundry, and he said that one of the things that eating out in America um, became was going to eat out cheaply at a Chinese restaurant. And in the late 19th century, early 20th century, only like rich people were thought to be able to eat out, but because the Chinese had figured out how to make food cheaply, you know, working class people and um, middle class people could go and eat out. And it was, and it was a treat, you know, and yeah. um, it was seen as a luxury, right? And so um, there, that this is going back to what we think of as luxuries for everyone. It's like, when you're working a really, really punishing job, when you're really stressed out, it does feel like a treat to go out and just get fast food. Like, who it wants does. to be preparing that, you know, tempeh sandwich? That feels like punishment to yourself, right? <laughs> and you were just, you, you're making all your enchiladas, you're very industrious. Kudos to you. I don't think I could do that. I, I mean, I tried to be more organized about work, but, and food recently, just because of the pandemic and everything. But I'm not a very organized person about food. I was when my son was home. And then when he was gone, I was like, wow, I don't have to pack lunches anymore. But um, then you're just like, 
when I'm at work teaching all day, like having going out for lunch feels like a special thing. And I feel like when you're at work doing a punishing job, having a high sugar, high fat thing that you buy, you know, from a fast food place feels like a treat. How we can change that is not like changing an individual person and saying, you know, you're just, you know, you're a piece of shit because you aren't eating vegan, but actually just providing for like an infrastructure of better food where people can eat out cheaply if they want to. One of the examples I think I've talked about in another um, podcast was, you know, when I was in France um, studying abroad just many years ago, when the French university system was more heavily subsidized, like they give us these food tickets at the university that were worth five five francs, that's like a dollar. And you could go and go to any univers- any cafeteria and um, get a healthy lunch, right? Or a dinner even. And um, it wasn't, it was all publicly funded. So, you know, you got like the various things on trays and like it was a very surly person who was serving it to you. But now our food services on UCI campus are completely controlled by Aramark and Sodexco. I don't know if you know those companies. Those are companies that pioneered um, um, outsourcing of NA- for NATO troops during the Balkan Wars. They oh, provided they? food services for those people. And so the university, rather than employing cafeteria workers because it wants to be an enlightened employer and provide them with, you know, um, salaries and benefits, it farms, it would rather give the contract to Sodexo and Aramark, you know, famously anti-union, private VC funded um, companies who then hire workers at minimum wage without um, benefits to serve foods that are contracted by Subway, Panda Express, um, you know, whatever, like all the fast food joints that um, then pay rent to the university as well. So even though universities are nonprofit, they've cut their food services budgets by farming it out and then like selling the spaces to private companies who, you know, you know, brand themselves in, into the minds of young um, people so that you're just like, I need a Subway sandwich. I'm hungry. I'm going to have a Subway sandwich. We only have Starbucks on campus, right? Because Starbucks pays more for the rentals of these things. All of these things came onto university campuses after, in a huge way, after the 2001 recession, after the 2008 recession, right? There's no reason why there has to be a Starbucks on campus. There's no. no reason why there has to be a subway on campus. There's no reason why Aramark has to um, employ food services people rather than the university itself. So um, these are things that are really interesting to me. They're not interesting to other leftists. Like they're like, oh yeah, we're you know, um, I'm really into gaming and uh, I got a theory about fans. Right. So I'm just like whatever. Like I. And and they're rewarded for it, and the professors are sort of interested in this. And um, you know, what we're what we're talking about here is just seems too normy and production oriented. Yeah. For the average PMC elite person. Yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of people, if 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 you have a an average PMC leftist who who gets on board with thinking of any kind of utopian vision whatsoever, right? They'll they they do it in a way where it's like it's for they're figuring out the way that it would be for everyone 
and I and I like I, instead of like thinking there would be a lot of local empowerment for people to be able to do their own things, right? So for so we need big systems, but we also need local people to be able to decide if they want to how they want to organize that. Right. Because you were talking about uh, smaller farming, maybe more communal style, more maybe it's that family model, maybe it's more communal style. Different people want it different ways, but they need the system that supports them to be able to do that at the smaller scale. Uh, And without that system, they're up against the market. Right. Right right now we have like just mass markets. That's it. Right. And so, uh, by the way, Aramark also, it doesn't just contract all the universities in, the, in this fucking country. It also does uh, all the hospitals and the prisons. <laughs> and so you're eating prison food at that university is really what it is. It's like... They have a, yeah, I, and um, Sodexco does the cleaning crews. You know, um, they're, very, they're very clear, like, um, levels of struggle that we could be engaged on. And then you'd be like, well, you know, why don't you go do that? And I've tried, I've basically given up on campus politics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the radical liberal professor wants to do defund the police and um, wants to demonize um, the right and extremism, yeah. you know, whatever, right, extre- right-wing extremism and defund. And, right. You know, they want to do land acknowledgments. They want to declare themselves against settler colonialism. But nobody wants to focus on the issues I want to focus on. And I don't like land acknowledgments because they don't look at the actual economic infrastructure of what makes it impossible for our students to afford to live where they're going to school right now. So yes, the Taiwo Indians, like they're a very small tribe right now. They were always a very small tribe in Orange County. We can acknowledge them, but why don't we acknowledge that Donald Bren, billionaire, owns Irvine, the Irvine company, and the the average home within our area has topped a million dollars. The median price the average home in our area is topped to a million dollars. You can do all the land acknowledgements you want, but if you don't acknowledge this very basic fact, then you're just doing a lot of window dressing and virtue hoarding. And it right. makes me really angry. Um, but um, that's like one of the most, that's one of the hardest things for me to go to work and have, hear all these lofty ideals that are completely divorced from the economic political situation and then have everyone be like nodding along I just feel like sometimes like I'm going like I'm crazy I feel like I'm you know being gaslit like maybe everyone can afford a million dollar homes um and I'm just like um worried about nothing I know it's not true yeah I actually but um um maybe everyone can just accept this like nobody's nobody bridles at this but there's something in me that's just um that just hates this shit so there's much the, it just feels like it's a disciplining of the minds from your book disciplined minds how we're yeah. done it just feels like it's a quelling of um dissent and a quelling of um actual political economic critique when we get the land acknowledgments while um, the average rent in New York City this week has gone up. The average rent has gone up over $4,000 a month. My son's really? friends uh, rented a two-bedroom apartment in the East Village where you know, I lived a long time ago, like um, a five-story walk-up, tiny two-bedroom, 
and they're paying $4,200 a month. Yeah. It's just shocking. How do people even survive? I don't know. And I, you know, uh, Idaho's historically been an affordable place to live, but the California flight to, uh, to Boise, to the Boise area, especially has driven up the cost of living so much. My, Shoot, I wanted to go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, like I'm doing the California flight. I'm not in a tiny house because there's no bathroom or kitchen in this thing. But this is a little thing that I built on wheels, and I have it parked on a farm outside of Boise. What? Right? You're yeah. Kidding? No. <laughs> no. Yeah, I'm on a 17-acre farm. It's not mine. I, the people let me live here rent-free, and I try to help out sometimes. But like, it's it's uh, this has been my number one way of cutting costs. And it's because the first, my first 10 years in the workforce, I never had anything left over after rent. And so when I was coming out of college, I was like, there's, I'm going back into this, right? Because, because there was a little while where I was like, I'm going to teach, you know, I thought I'll teach in the university. It's just, it's not a, it's not, that's not even, it's not possible. And so it's just back out into the workforce and trying to find a way, but it's like, if we build this. The reason it was built without a kitchen and a bathroom, though, was because of that idea that goes, well, and then in the future, I can always park it somewhere that has a shared, you know, bathroom or shared kitchen or, you know, and so it's been adjacent to people's houses as a result. But it would also be easy to to build, you know, a kitchen facility. Right. And so can you can you tow it? Can you? Tow yeah. Your- yeah. And so I've had it parked a few different places over the last several years. And, uh, and it's the only way I'm able to secure any extra time and energy, right? Because otherwise I would be having to work all of that extra time. Right. Oh, to pay. Oh, wow. That's right. intense. So you can use your, the farm kitchen where you are. I can. Yeah. And so, um, Anne, my partner, she lives in, uh, in Boise downtown. She pays $900 a month for a studio that is so small and cramped and, and garbage that like, it's like the bed is like right beside the kitchen. And then there's the oh, bathroom God. and like, that's it. Right. And it's $900 a month. And, uh, they, they just sent her a thing saying it's going to go up to 1100. And so what we're looking at right now is like, okay, maybe we want to live in Mexico. I don't know. Like mm-hmm. we're, we're looking at places because mm-hmm. in Mexico for $600 a month, you can have, you can be renting a two bedroom, uh, a, a house with mm-hmm. a, with a garage. Right. You know, um, you know, Jason Miles of This Is Revolution Oakland. He moved to Rosarito. Did he? So it's within. Um, it's like three hour drive from here. Mm. He can be in San Diego in you know an hour and a half. So. Oh, really? It, it seems like it's working out. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's you know, and and we're not exactly sure where we're going to be next year, but yeah, she's uh, before they up the rent there. She's going to be moving here. We're going to share this space for a little while, but because she's a big, you know, she she prepares all our own meals and stuff like this. She's like, well, we just have to build. We're, we're right now. We're actually building the blueprints for a little, uh, a kitchenette, like on a little trailer. Cause our plan, we have to bootstrap everything. So we're basically thinking like, okay, so when, when, when we actually have the money to get property, we'll be able to tow move this the little thing the, there, yeah, tow yeah. that thing there, and then we'd be good for like the first year and we can build like the next building, right? But it's always going to be building little buildings and little add-ons. It's never going to be just like, oh yeah, we have a house, we can walk into it, we're ready to go, right? It's 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 completely backwards. <laughs> and so At least, you know, you can do that. At least you can do that. You can build your, you, can, you have the skills. 
Yeah. Most people don't have those skills. Yeah. How did you acquire those skills? Kids construction, you know. Yeah. It's well. So you work blue collar jobs. Yeah. Well, and I've worked a lot of construction jobs, you know, and uh, the then I also one of the big things I did through college was just being a, a like a handyman like helping around yeah. people's yards. I always worked on like the, there's like a rich side of Boise and I was able to find a few people who used me. I'd go up there and tend their house or whatever. And, uh, it paid really good. And, uh, you know, the part of that job is just whenever people are like, Oh, do you know how to do this thing? Just always say, "Oh yeah, yeah, I do," and then you, and then and then you and then get on YouTube, go on YouTube, yeah, and then YouTube how to do the thing, and then I show and up and like, I'm like, "Okay, I, I can do this." Like, I, I don't know how to do this thing. Oh wait a minute, um, uh, I'm just, just need to take this call right now. You know, yeah, next, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's hilarious. They all figure it out eventually, but you know, I mean, yeah, it's like, oh, I need my my fence replaced. Oh, YouTube. I need my sprinklers fixed. Oh, YouTube, you know. And well, so I think I think I've been like um, part of like ruining Boise for all of you guys because when I came back to California, I was like, you know what, you know what's the perfect place? Boise, college town in a red state. That's like the it's the uh, it's the utopia. <laughs> and then people were like, um, but you know, there are all these like crazy militia there. I'm like, it's a college town, so it's it feels it like Austin or Berkeley or whatever. Yeah, and then it's got beautiful wilderness. So I'm afraid, like I'm spreading the it's your fault. word about California. Yeah, it's my individual fault. Just going Idaho, man. That's the way to go. No, well, there's just, I, well, you're trying to escape the trap of um, wage labor, and it's yeah. amazing how it's just become more and more impossible for your generation. And so we have like these, we have a progressive liberal elite who are completely divorced from the um, actual dilemmas of from this kind young of working right. working class Americans who have had to improvise these kinds of lives. And but what you've done is actually created the conditions for you to become to cultivate the intellect, but in a, in such an extreme way that is not available to most people because most people don't know how to do what you do, right. and they don't live in a place where there's enough land. No. For them to do that. Can you imagine? And, and and you didn't like heed the siren call of like, I need to go to be, I need to go to New York to become an intellectual. Because right now, like, how how would anyone even survive? I I don't know how anybody who didn't come, who doesn't come from money, who's in their twenties, could survive without completely selling their soul to big tech or Wall Street. Um, four thousand dollar a month rent. That's like. Everyone's salary. That's like the median salary for Americans. You know, just that $4,000. Unless you don't want to eat or something. But, yeah. Um, Where are you going to... Yeah, exactly. There's no way that budgeting is going to get you there, you know. Nope. And all the... Oh, yeah. All the avocado toast and the um, Starbucks lattes that you're not eating will not get you $4,000 in rent. <laughs> yeah. No, Exactly. So I want to get to a couple of these questions before we close out. I, I know I had a ton of questions. We're not going to get to them. It's okay because this I prefer the way this has evolved. But um, there's a couple that I would definitely like to to get into. I feel like the, the most important one maybe for me because of my audience, and I want my audience to be familiar with this, uh, when it comes to the PMC analysis, this is not a critique of – 
oh, you are in a class standing that has these certain privileges and so you just need to be apologetic all the time and even more reflexive and be all sorry about how PMC you are. No, it's about the fucking PMC mode is the problem. The mode, and the, what, what happens if you, if you call out some shit, oh, this is some PMC mode bullshit, you know, I'll say something like that, and then someone's like, well, what are you talking about? I'm a working class person. Huh? Mm, yeah, yeah, right, but right. you've inculcated the mode. You've, because you want to change the world, you've taken on the mantle of world change person, because all the influencers that you see are PMC, you're, yeah. you're trying to yeah. do as they do, and you're trying to be a good person. Granted, yeah. but yeah. you're doing it the way that they do. You're, you, the path that has been laid out for you is a PMC path. And so yeah. I want to talk about the values of the PMC and the mode of the PMC. And I want to bring it back to Michael Brooks, who um, in one of his last conversations with uh, Dr. Adolf Reed, they were talking about PMC. And he said, said something about like, like you know, because in these conversations, it's always like, well, I'm a, am I PMC? And he goes, he goes, yeah, I mean, I'll. Am I technically? Yeah, sure. But I don't act PMC. Don't act PMC. Just yeah, that's yeah. what it comes down to. It's like, are you for the fucking people? Are you for yeah. people whose bodies hurt and don't have time for your bullshit? Are you trying to make things better for them? Or no. are you going to do this? What What is the thing that they do? Like the, the, yeah. the, what are the key characteristics or, or behavior behavioristic I don't, I don't know about key characteristics but one of the things yeah. that we could say is that they you know if you're if you're aspirational to be belong to this class you're operating by its values or you've internalized its values you want to please it because of its authoritative power over you so one thing that i should say right away is that yeah. a lot of younger people feel like they have to adhere to pmc language and values which because they feel like that's the only way to succeed. And um, in psychoanalytic terms, it's like they're responding to this PMC superego. Right. Which says, like, you know, um, you have to be careful about what you say. You have to be tolerant of other people. But it all comes down to, like, an effectual judgment of you, a adjustment of your internal life. I don't give a shit about your internal life. Like... That, that would be number one. I'll judge you by your words. I'll judge you by your actions. I'll judge you by how honest you are with me. I'll judge you by persuasion. Don't tell me to go read a fucking book. This is one of the greatest moves. And a lot of people online and on the online left and lefties do this. And Hillary Clinton supporters do this too. They'll be like, well, can you read that book? Can you, have you read this book? Because so-and-so says, did you read it? Did you read it? You didn't read it, did you? And it's like, I'm having a conversation with you. Yeah. You don't have to pull your credentials with me. Make a persuasive argument. Yeah. Don't pull the I read the book thing or with HRC, like go read her website. I'm not going to read her website. Just tell me what she stands for, right? And um, I, I feel like in a way it's like our return, we need to return to like kind of honesty and persuasive language, like almost in the mode of like, the, re the rhetors of um, Greece and just say, like, use your language to persuade me of your position. Be honest with me about what you think. Don't appeal to some higher authority. The PMC is very, very good at appealing to a higher authority. And they say, well, you haven't read that book, so you really have no right to talk about this. And they're really into purity politics. Like, it's all about me taking, getting rid of my sin, and that gives me the right to speak. Um, in the book about trauma, I'm really trying to look at how, um, in a period of growing 
um, inequality, we have moved away from the liberal ideal of a reasoned, a, a reasoning subject in the public sphere to the suffering subject in the public sphere. So that my authority when I speak to you in this PMC perverted you know, public sphere has to do with my lived experience. And if you judge me, then you're racist, you're phobic of, of any sort. If you're skeptical of me and you're evil. Like right. there's this kind of like um, um, pseudo uh, more. What, what what can I say? It's like crypto religious. It's moralistic, and it's all about like group identity. So a lot of that happens through consumerism, through buying through buying into a certain kind of um, language protocol. And if I don't adhere to that, then you know you're immediately ejected from me. So one of the, from my, from my circle, and so a lot of these young people who take on this language, they, you know, have been taught by their professors that they need to speak this way so that they can get the grants, as you were saying, or they can get the job. And so I feel bad for them, but I want, but they're also, they, they can come at me really strongly and I'm just like, forget it. But, but I do feel bad for them because they feel like that's what they have to do to succeed. They have right. to distort and um, mutilate their own capacities for reason to adhere to what I think is like a very cultish way of speaking about politics, speaking about intersubjective relations. And um, you know, this, this happens on the level of intimacy, from the level of intimacy to identity. And it, in the end, it's just extremely narcissistic because it's all about like me, apologizing or acknowledging or doing something to myself to make myself acceptable. But if we all participate in this, it all, um, we can be in a group, but it really takes away from the dynamic robustness of like, you know, communicating with other people. It actually undermines trust because it makes it, you feel like if you step, you know, if you make the wrong step, then you're canceled, you're excluded. And um, people don't trust the way that you, and so it's all speech acts. It's all performative speech acts. Like, wh how are you obeying these protocols? If you're not obeying these protocols, you're an asshole. Well, we know that when we actually look at like um, working class environments or you know environments where there, there's a lot of physical labor at stake, um, one of the things that you have to do when you're on the assembly line, and this is the great. Um, discovery of Marx and solidarity in the 19th century was the, the factory itself created the conditions of solidarity because the workers had to depend upon each other so that they weren't killed, they weren't, um, and they didn't lose the flow of labor, right? Right. Um, cap the foreman creates a kind of incentive structure that makes us all competitive with each other. The union tries to make us more um, aware of how we're interested, how we're, our interests unite ourselves. But the thing about, like, there's a there's a rough language um, of teasing that's part of intimacy. It happens among women. It happens among men. When you are in a position of mutual interdependency and absolute trust, you're very very rough with each other. You're not like tolerating. Right. You, it's what it's how you get through the day. It's like yo motherfucker, what are you doing? You just did that wrong. Come on, do this now. And you're just moving through a workflow that's very intense. Right. But if you but you're like. Um, Roughness with each other is about trusting the fact that, you know, on the line, 
you will um, sacrifice yourself for your brethren or you're, you trust someone to do the right thing so that you can do the right thing on, you know, a difficult job, right? It's only in this white collar world when there's nothing at stake and you're all competitive that suddenly we have this like protocol of I'm going to step on eggshells, you're stepping on eggshells, I'm watching you. It's like 360 degree surveillance about what you're actually saying. It is like Stasi, little, we're all little brothers ready to denounce each other within the white collar world. But if you look at other workspaces, other workplaces that don't have PMC values, a lot of it is about actual trust and like verbal roughness. It I is. Am, if you are if you are close to me as a close friend, I mean I just met you, so I'm not gonna be like this. I am so rough with you. I am so I'm honest with you. You're never gonna get an unvarnished view, and that's because I trust you because we have like um, we trust our relationship to be durable right. in this way, and that is like such a relief to have when you have people who will um, not you know turn around and say. I can't believe you just said that or, you know, or, um, or, you know, um, or just give you some fake feedback because that's what we get in PMC world. It's like, I'm going to tell you what I really think. You tell me what you really think. And we support each other in doing this thing. And I'm going to tell you when you're being a fool and I'm going to tell you when you're fucking up because our interests are so powerfully aligned. I feel like with the PMCization of left liberal you know, politi political spaces, 95% of the energy is actually trying to find the right etiquette so right. that you can, like, treat each other with very, very, with kid gloves so you don't offend anyone, and then nothing gets done. It's like they don't even need COINTELPRO. They don't need the FBI coming to fuck things up and sabotage things. We're sabotaging ourselves constantly. It's one of the reasons why I couldn't go to DSA anymore because I just felt like I was at work. I was like, oh, my God, what did I say? Did I say something wrong? I mean, like, we're, we should be working for, like, the interests of working class people, maybe trying to run a DSA candidate, and we should trust each other. But then it suddenly realized, like, it's not about those values. It's about, like, um, adhering to some, you know, the, the latest protocols and not offending anyone and being like boutique about what we're doing. And I'm like, I just don't have time for that. I just, Pro proving, you know. proving that you're a deserving representative is, it seems to be like so, so like the hypersensitivity cultivation is, oh, cause it, it all plays into this visibility and, 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 oh, we, this space, oh, so who's in this space and who's representative in this space. And so I'm centering the people who are, you know, traditionally, historically marginalized from this space. This is the DSA today. And then, and then it's always this, that their activism is hype is cultivation of hypersensitivity, which means yep. my ability to take offense is my virtue. And it proves my deservingness of being able to represent those people who I'm supposed to be able to empower. Right. 100%. 100%. And you know what? You just like take all the inner political energy out of a room. You alien. And then they're like, why do we have more working class people here? You know what? They don't have time for this. Right. They don't have time for this kind of thing. I mean, any, uh, unless they're like trying to go to college and they want to get a job in a liberal arts college or something like that, then they're like, oh, I'm going to go to TSA and learn how to act. I, I mean, I, I, I have to say I'm just so disappointed in the organization because I really, really wanted it to be a left, a viable left party. Same. Um, and... And now, like, certain people on social media think that I have this, like, superpower or something, so if I criticize them, I'm destroying them. I'm not. 
I don't have that superpower. They destroyed themselves in 2019. They, des- they destroyed themselves. They don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that. In 2019, they had the most traction, mass, and, and world attention. And what they did with their convention was make a laughing stock. I was still in the DSA at the time. Like that for me was basically the last the last straw. Um, and I and I know a guy who was there representing this chapter here. Um, and he's one of the guys I'd started this chapter here with. And uh, he and he was talking to all the the the, the workers in the st- in the the in the hotel or the conference place wherever they were doing the, the this Atlanta, conference. I think it was. Yeah, wherever wherever the conference was taking place, there, there's workers at that convention, and right. they were so put off by it, right? Like they're just like, you know. And so uh, my friend was going up to like these workers, like you know, and talking to them on the elevators and stuff like that, being like, "So what do you think of these people and stuff like that?" Because right, they had like their they had okay. This this blows my mind. So there are people saying no clapping because it's going to trigger someone's PTSD because someone might be very sensitive to loud noises at the same time that they're talking about how revolutionary they are. But, okay, look, there is this part of me, though, that's always like, hey, there's room enough for everybody. We can make this work. So, hey, there's people who want to have like a, you know, a, 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 a very like, oh version of this well guess what they made a room for those people there they did there was a room where people could watch it on tv you know they didn't have to be in the room with everybody else they had control over the volume they had their little coloring books and everything like that and here's the thing there's this part of me that goes all right you know what there's room in this movement for people who need coloring books and their special little safe little room the problem is even though they had their room where people could go be away from the noise and control the volume, they yeah, yeah. still they said still no clapping. No clapping. Yeah. And that's where this, you give an inch, they take a mile. You give an mm-hmm. inch, they take a mile. It will never be inclusive enough for the people who yeah. want, like, the person who is going to freak out because there's some clapping. And one of the things that I pointed out is that with this no clapping thing, they, they never think, they never even stop to think, well, what, well, how might this backfire? Like they never stop to think like, hey, maybe some people they're with their neuroses and their issues, that clapping being a socially approved way to vent off some steam and some nervous anxiety, that's actually important. And it's a way of connecting well, well, with other people. What about like just spontaneous, that's like a spontaneous way that we've culturally learned to like feel affirmation for each other. And like, that's the thing we need to control. That's the thing we need to stop spontaneity organic um expressions of solidarity and they fucking succeeded and the the criticism that came out you know i was like i i didn't i stepped back from but i remember people saying like well you weren't there you know it was really amazing and i was like you know what your pr has failed and it looks ridiculous to right because there's social media and there's stuff on youtube like this but you're going to say like that was amazing. It was amazing to be at the convention. It was still, you got all this work done. I was like, that was a world historical moment that was, that was the leadership away. of that convention um, completely failed to meet. And you can try to pick yourself up again and say, you know, let's try to do this right next time and show like solidarity with the populist right. um, movement of workers and accommodate like, the majority of Americans, not the time, not like try to accommodate every sliver of um, identity. And um, it was done. It was done for. And I felt so much rage just at the ways in which people were trying to spin it. 
already like right after they they kind of realized like some of the leadership realized like it was bad right but then they were like well you had to be there and, I, right? and that's another thing about no, um just not acknowledging like what you actually see or what you actually feel and it feels just like gaslighting you know yeah. from the right but you know one of the things that i felt was really you know was on a smaller scale was that you know in 2018 um the promise keepers the oath keepers you know the proud boys were going to do a um rally in Laguna Beach and I was in DSA at the time when we organized this counter rally there were maybe 80 of them and there ended up about, about three to four thousand counter rally oh, people came geez. from people came from San Bernardino from LA there were like red flags flying there was and the Democratic Party told everyone to stay at home I was like look you know on our list like you stay at home if you don't feel safe but right. we're going to go and we're going to have like a way of handling the whole situation it was me and another woman who was um organizing like a lot of the logistics things and after that like it was not acknowledged what we did and then these like young guys who wanted to be you know like Che Guevara types they took over the following meetings so a lot of people started coming to the meetings the OC um of the OC chapter and then like something about like their you know lecturing everyone just like reduced numbers one by one and no one ever said like, oh, thanks to blah, 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 and blah, 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 for, you know, putting yeah. this together, getting, um, we, we had like escorts for people who wanted to get escorted. We had first aid, you know, we had to do all, everything our, on our own, the, the infrastructure, get the license. I mean, the police had sound cannons. They were terrified. Like oh they were going to set off sound cannons. Oh, I have geez. all of the picture documentation, right? Oh. But I felt like just at that in that, on that level, like, um, there were just people like who were opportunistic, who wanted to take this platform and then use to show how revolutionary they were. And it was like, we're not in a revolutionary condition. Right. We successfully silenced these far right assholes. We created a kind of legitimacy for a left wing organization that could mobilize very quickly then you build on that. You don't lecture people about Marxist-Leninism or, you know, you see, like, what is the next thing that you can do to create more confidence, to build a mass movement, and then the um, convention happened. And I was just like, God, Oh, so that those two things happen in a row. I'm going to step we, away we for a bit. It's 3 o'clock. Sorry, we've just been yeah. going on and on. Well, but I, it's very cathartic for me to talk about these yeah. This experience and to hear your experience because it really was like really tragic right and there were very right. few people who understood how tragic that was for all of us who had that hope at the time well and 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 it led into uh the so yeah 2019 and then this leads into 2020 Let's not forget what happened. And I just always have to emphasize this. People think that there's people with a rosy eyed or starry eyed, you know, perception of the left through 2020. Um, to me, it's just like you were not you do not have any regular people in your life. If you still had the starry eyed, you know, version of the left through 2020, they they, they saw the George Floyd protests and then the, the riots for seven months. They just see it as just good. Just like it's just a good thing. It's just positive. And then the worst thing that happened within that year besides COVID was January 6th, which was the worst thing since the Civil War, they think. Okay. Okay. Even if that was true, the way that the left after Bernie turned into 
a leftism of the, in its most radical moments or whatever of particularist politics of identitarian politics uh, of opportunistic politics of opportunistic yeah. politics all of this still not the worst thing to me the worst thing from all of it was mm -hmm. the the fucking gaslighting humiliating uh straw manning narrative scripts being rolled out about how oh if you don't if you don't trust the the CDC if you don't trust the Democratic Party, if you don't trust these activists, if you don't trust, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then you're the problem. It's your fault. It's you people. It's it's the people who live in the states that are not convinced that they need to shut down the entire fucking world. No, like there, there are a lot of people, a lot of people uh, on all sides of everything, apolitical, left, right, uh, who, who weren't doing this whole like, yeah, we need to shut down everything, you know, and, and they believed that you know, uh, we you you got to make it so that people who are uh, particularly susceptible to you know immunocompromised are able to stay home. Right. But the idea of shutting everything down was a debatable idea from the beginning, and they act like it was never debatable. And so this brings me back to the authoritarian thing you talked about versus reason. Right. Reasoning with people is like, here's my position. These are my reasons for thinking that, and you do it in a way where you are assuming an audience. That has a fucking brain and and, 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 and and intellectual integrity and taking personal responsibility for, oh yeah, I gotta think that through myself. Instead of just like, here's how it's gonna be, and you listen to me or you're the problem. Which, I you're mean, you're a bad person. I mean, yeah. this is the thing that no one wants to talk about. Oh, we'll end on this controversial note, but um, <laughs> I think the rates of infection between California and Florida are not that dissimilar, and Florida never shut down. So no one wants to face that music. Yeah, I got, no, I got they, other they, things to stand out, but I, I can't even say that. Well, what, someday, what the, maybe like in a year, maybe like in a year or two. But um, that's one of the big you know, ones, though. The, that the, you know, the California Florida thing could be one comparison, but you know, there was like a lot of what did I call it? mask hoarding? Masks became like the virtue hoarding thing, and sure, I was scared for the first eight weeks. I was terrified, right? You know, first ten weeks or so, I was I was totally terrified. But now I see like there are people. And, you know, we're coming back to normal, but we're all a little bit scared. But there are some people who, who, won't ju who just won't let go of the idea that it is dangerous <laughs> out there, that other people are dangerous, and yeah. that we live in, um, you know, dangerous times, and this will never go away. I don't know. I got it. It was kind of like the flu. And it was like, oh, yeah, you got it. You're lucky. Um, what, about what about this? There's a lot of whataboutism. But it's like it's a public health thing. And um, there has to be at some point at which we acknowledge the things we don't know, the mistakes that were made, and the fact that um, masking does, is not the be-all and end-all. Does not make you a better person than other people? I, right. You know, okay, so, the, so it, I definitely, like, throughout the whole thing, kept thinking, I can't believe I wrote this book at this time. <laughs> you know, I got so many dirty looks when I would go out, you know, running my neighborhood. There's nobody on the streets. And I... I can run without a mask, and people are just like, "You are the devil," and you know, you are you are spreading germs oh throughout. Anybody who it paid was, attention should have known. For, you're safe outside. Yeah, you're outside, Distance and people like wiping down their groceries. But the thing is, I was prepared for this because I had a pit. We adopted a pit bull like ten years ago. He he passed away during the pandemic, but oh. they treated my pit bull the same way. Like, <gasps> oh my gosh, oh no, so it's a pit bull. It was just hilarious. 
I mean, you know, well, uh, I don't I, know. People love to be love to be feel better than other people. Like, that, and that's it, the really it, sad thing is that DSA devolved into the how can we feel better than And they people? they canceled like, it all freed that same and in that same moment, right? During yeah, 2020. That, that was that was just yeah. that was it. That yeah. Was it. And and, so, I, and it is so fucking sad. No, and the so but sad. but if we're gonna bring up California, Florida, the only other f- fact the, the the fact one of the one of the really important facts, the George Floyd protests did not make spikes in any of the places that they happened. No spikes in COVID, none, none. There's all these mainstream outlets. All these mainstream outlets have articles out about it, and they all talk about why, and they all try to say that it's because more people were masked. Okay. Um, some of the people were masked. I was there. I don't, was anyone else there? Not a lot of people were masking. And even if they were, there's so many people around each other. And that yeah. was for months and months that was and before months. Before the, um, before the, um, um, vaxes were out. I was there. I was there. What? My son was there. We were, we were all there. And then not, not all of us, but there was, there were, you know, weeks of things in Los Angeles and, People were masked. People, we were outside, but there was no spike. You're right. There was no spike. No spike. I don't even want to. Okay, but now we've like gone. And, but virtue, <laughs> virtue hoarding is the only thing people know now in the left liberal um, spectrum of things, and the mask was definitely part of that, like accoutrement. Like if you didn't, if you didn't wear one, then you were, you were a bad person, and you weren't participating in this, like. Thing. But you know what? We were already conditioned for this with um, the taking off your shoes and the TSA. We're very, very compliant. Like, there's security theater. There's hygiene theater. There's progressive theater. And I think people are craving something that's authentic. And um, say what you will about Trump, but he was so fucking crazy that there was something about him that um, seemed more authentic than um, Hillary, who was completely manicured and everything else. And so for all of us, we thought Bernie had that kind of authenticity and yeah. should have gone toe-to-toe with him. And he did. He he does. But he's, you know, like loyal to the Senate, loyal to Biden, and, you know, we're fucked. He but, was more um, scared. He was more can... scared of the Democratic Party. He was more scared of the Democratic Party blaming him for Trump a second time around than he yeah. was of actually going against the Democratic Party, which is basically what would have been needed in that yeah, time. which is, you know, his dilemma, and we have to come up now with something else. We can't just put everything on no, him. No. And um, we we have to come up with some other political line that remains loyal to a kind of leftism that is about the authentic needs of the majority of Americans and it's dozens uh, and working-class Americans. Yeah. It seems easy when you say it like that, but it's so fucking hard because everything is arrayed against it. Well, and yeah. is and the the you know, having been involved for like six years there, from right before Bernie through when he was done, it's like okay, the the first time that he he dropped and did what he said and you know did these speeches for Hillary and all that, so that he could supposedly it was all just you know maneuvering to get rid of the the super PAC deal against him so that he could really pull it off in 2020. So for me, it was all strategic still. Mm. There was a lot of people who burnt out in that time though. And, and I remember seeing a lot of people, they dropped out, they never came back. And Idaho was and Idaho and a lot of other states who did go for mm-hmm. Bernie. I mean, when we went for Bernie, we rolled out for Bernie. Everyone was out for Bernie. This other time around, 
like very few people. The people who burnt out the first time and then also some of the people who burnt out the second time, some of them just become tankies. And the thing is, is for me, for me, it's like... It's a very small proportion, right? Well, but in the DSA, it's a big proportion. Oh, okay. And so okay. Okay. the... Here's the thing. I'm, 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 I'm not like, oh, anti-authoritarian. We have a real democracy and needs to be preserved. Whatever. I don't believe that. But at the same time, though, the... What, what it does is it, it, it's funny how the, the PMC mode, it fails. And then the people who are like, oh, okay, well, that, the Democratic Party is not going to work. And so now we're going to be Leninists. They do it in a PMC way. Yeah, I know. And because there is the vanguardism kind of cooked into Leninism, it works really well with their kind of recycled new left vanguardism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so it's just like, yeah, yeah, it's like I yeah. don't care like, what you call you it or how up, you're going to go about it. Give but up on, you give up on popular politics. You give up on mass politics. It's like That's these 2018, the these 2018 Che Guevara wannabe people you're talking about. This is what, I'm, <laughs> this is what I've seen. And it's like, yeah. it's like, oh, yeah, you've got it all figured out. Right. So good for you. Yeah. Yeah. Good for you. Good luck with that. Good luck. I know. Well, we don't have. We're not. In, we're not ending on a high note, but at least we're having this conversation, David. Yeah. So and I, and I at hope least we can we can think out of the group thing, and we're not being like carted away. Yeah. <laughs> really, I'm really paranoid these days. Well, I. I mean, look, they're gonna come for you. If if at the point that they can't ignore you anymore, they're gonna come for you, and it just. Just make sure to like go outside and touch grass and have long phone calls with human beings and don't go on Twitter and TikTok when they're going after you and you'll get through it and it's uh, you yeah, know yeah, yeah. I've got no, I've, I, I've got no, your back no, I'm not, I'm... I've got your back I'll come down there okay I'll no, so... no 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 <laughs> Twitter doesn't matter no no it doesn't matter I'm actually talking more about work these days I mean I, I don't care about social media like, I I cannot tell you how powerful the experience of having written this book is because I've just gotten such an incredible response from people from all walks of life and I'm still getting those kinds of emails and I feel like I wrote the book for them not not for these Twitterati or anything else but I do feel like um, how far the academy will tolerate my critique is something else but I'm not I'm not um, backing off not backing off at all well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. I really, really appreciate well, it. Thank everyone, you. Thank you for having me. Everyone, make sure to check out Virtue Hoarders. And I look forward to your next book. Thank you. Um, all right, Dave. Take care. I'm going to stop. Okay, I'm going to stop.